All right, well, we are beginning our, um, our message on how to study uh, the Bible, all right? So why is it necessary to have a lengthy you know, Sunday school class on how to study the Bible? What do you guys think? Why do we ask, you know, why do we need to answer this question, how to study the Bible? So we can have a deeper understanding of God's word, yeah. God's commands for us. Uh-huh. So we understand it rightly. So we understand it rightly, okay. Have you guys ever been a part of a Bible study where they don't really study the Bible? Jack, you were. What will happen without naming names, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's just focused on more of a like self-help, do these ten steps kind of thing instead of actually trying to study what the Bible is teaching. Okay. Now, what else? Why why do we need to devote time to answering the question? How do we study the Bible? Uh-huh. Always have to listen to the pastor. Yeah, you kind of bring up an interesting point. I mean, the alternative is um, almost this magisterial, like, well, I don't know if I can actually understand it for myself. It's such a complicated book, right? Have you guys ever felt that way? Like, when I read the Bible, it just doesn't make sense to me, right? Yeah, and as a, as a teacher, you know, a lot of times... You can have that same approach as, as a student. Just, just tell me what's true, and like not thinking through it, how to how to determine it, and how to think for yourself. And that same thing can be true as if we just go and listen to someone else tell us yeah. what the Bible means, and not think through how to study it. Make make sure that that's what the mm -hmm. word actually said. Yeah. I mean, let's focus on words here. Like when we talk about study, I mean, what's implied in that word study? Being a student of, right? Work. Work. Devoting time to it. Devoting time to it, right? Placing importance on it. Mm-hmm. The desire to learn from it. Yeah. Using the in the future, the knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that there is some reason why you're doing it, right? Mm -hmm. To use it in some way. Okay, other thoughts? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is um, just understanding that there's not a real, you don't really have like this passive approach to the Bible where you just kind of read it. And then, you ever heard this phrase, what does the Bible, this is what it means to me? Now when people say that, what are, what are they implying? It's their opinion. Yeah, it's their opinion, right? This is how it kind of strikes me. Or this is what I think. And, um, you know, this is my truth. Uh, kind of implies that you know the text is something that just speaks different things to different people from the same words. It means yeah. this to me, to you it means that, uh -huh. to you it means that. So okay. you can't really be in that. You can't really be definitive about this is what it means because that's, uh -huh. that's what it means to you. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts? Why study the Bible? So then you get into um, 
Like, what is the Bible? In simple terms, I mean, I know you can't answer this with Jesus, so you're going to have to try a different Sunday school answer. But when we're talking about the Bible, what are we talking about? Inspired Word of God. The inspired Word of God, right? So what we're doing today, I mean, I think the whole, whole issue here is, um, and this will be a theme that's going to come up, is you get into this issue of, you know, here's the Bible, right, which is the inspired Word of God. And the appropriate Bible study, like when people say the, what, this is what the Bible means to me, is you kind of, you can start with me, your theology, what you want God to be like. Um, and I, I read the Bible because it makes me feel good, right? It gives me some good wisdom in life. It's like chicken soup for the soul. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's kind of my approach to it, right? The Bible is like a devotional tool as opposed to I think what... Uh, Real Bible study begins with the Bible being over me, right? Or the Bible being over you. Uh, is having a kind of a deep commitment to basically abide by the truth, right? And so when you understand that the Bible is the Word of God, it's basically, you know, God is telling you what to do, what to believe, how to live, how to think. Does that make sense? And so Bible study towards that end is all about, you know, renewing um, your mind. Somebody have Romans 12, 1 through 2. Yeah, pull out your phone, open your Bible. It's because you don't want to quote it wrong accidentally. Okay. So who, who has that? Oh, we got one over here. Go ahead. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Mm -hmm. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, mm -hmm. and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yeah, so notice, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so something that scripture does is it changes how you think and how you live, right? But that only happens, right, when you interpret it correctly, right? So when we have like, you are interpreting what I'm saying right now. Yeah, my job as a communicator is to help you believe or help you think or help you understand the words that I'm imparting to you at this moment. And so when we get into the Bible, I mean, it's about trying to understand what is God saying, you know, to begin with, right? What's God saying to you? So what we're gonna do, first of all, as we kind of go on this journey is, um, you know, that's like the whole theme of what we're doing. It's like, you know, we are people under God's authority. How do we understand his message for us? And part of it is to understand how we got the Bible. So I'll just go read this introduction to you. Uh, the topic of origins has fascinated men and women for centuries. People from all stripes perform copious amounts of research to trace their ancestral heritage. Scientists opine about the origin of natural phenomena. Children ask their parents the dreaded question, where did I come from? Yeah, that gets interesting, <laughs> especially when they're teenagers and you have to have a talk. That's <coughs> a number of reasons warrant such curiosity. One co that comes to mind is that we believe that the past holds the keys to the future. Understanding our family heritage may give us insight into why we look the way we do. Inquiry into the origin of a tornado may warn us of future ones to come. 
Knowing how children are made can give us a greater insight into the human body and advanced modern medicine. A lot of this wisdom dictates that before we understand how to study the Bible, we endeavor to comprehend its origin. So here's a question. Why is it important to understand the origin of the Bible, and how does knowing how it was put together give us insights into how to interpret it? So why is it important to know how the Bible was, where it came from, how it was put together? Gives you a background of it. I mean, obviously, one of the biggest parts of the Bible is you understand its supernatural, godly origins. Uh huh. So therefore, you give the the book more credence, reverence, because yeah, from where it came from, mm -hmm. it's not just you know a pamphlet you picked up off the ground. Or yeah. Like that. Mm hmm. I like it was saying how <clears throat> understanding where tornadoes come from gives us a better insight, understanding that it's, you know, written by witnesses and um, people who were there. It's not a fiction, mm -hmm. fictional book. It's mm -hmm. true. And so that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you who might be familiar with Mormon doctrine, do you guys know how they got the Book of Mormon? Well, according to the story, um, the angel Moroni buried some gold plates, right, in upstate New York. Well, actually had one of his messengers, like there's a, you know, a soldier who buried it in upstate New York, and then an angel told Joseph Smith the location of the golden plates. He went and dug up the golden plates, and then he managed to translate the golden plates by looking at this you know, text, which was like reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, so he would look at that, and then he would put his head in a hat where he had two stones in it, and then he would give the translation. And for Mormons, right, that is like proof that that is where their religion came from. You know, that there's no way that this could be of man because it was given to them on golden plates. Because somebody spilled the secret about his origin, an angel took the golden plates back up into heaven so you don't have them around anymore, right? So that's their supernatural origin story. Now that would be one option. Um, the other option, and this is what you know, most scholars would say, is that Joseph Smith wrote, read a fictional book called A View to the Hebrews, which basically talks about these Hebrews who, who went from Israel to um, you know, North and South America and established a, an alternative society, right? So he read that and then he wrote the Book of Mormon. So you have two contrasting ways that they're kind of sorting through the origin of it, right? One would, you know, affirm its authenticity, and the other one would diminish it, right? So that's why when we get into the origin of the Bible, um, it's somewhat controversial because some people do not want to believe that the Bible has authority over man, right? In contrast, they would have man having authority over the Bible. And there's different ways that people, and we'll talk about this as we go on. You know, just the whole idea, did, did God actually communicate to mankind, right? That's the term revelation, he reveals himself through words. So how you believe in the origin of the Bible and how it was put together, was it the work of man or was it the work of God? Or is there some like relationship between the two? Does that make sense? So that's a real critical question because what a lot of like Old Testament scholarship does is they, they would conjecture that you have four different authors 
who all kind of worked together and, and somehow they edited each other's works to produce what we have in, in, in scripture. Is that the case or did Moses write it? Um, how do we know that the books of the Bible that we have are the books of the Bible? You guys ever hear rumors like, you know, the Gospel of Thomas? Um, or there's some extra gospel that they discovered. Why is that part of the uh, Bible and not another part? Or anybody grew up Catholic? If you grew up Catholic, right, there's some extra books in the Old Testament. Right, Maccabees, uh, you know, Tobit, uh, to name a few. And so should those be parts of the Bible? Does that make sense? And so understanding the origin of the Bible and how we actually got the Bible is actually pretty critical to how to study the Bible. Does that make sense? So one of the first um, elements that we need to think about is inspiration, okay? So when we talk about inspiration, what are we talking about together? Does that have a clue about what that could mean? What is inspiration? Like if you were to use it in just like a common language, when something's inspirational, or somebody's an inspiration, what do we mean by that? I like to think of it in terms of music. When I was a conductor, you had the ictus at each beat point. That's the start of a movement in a different direction in your beat pattern. Uh -huh. That ictus is where it, I think inspiration rests and begins uh -huh. in anything that you do. So that there's a something that happens inside that you feel compelled to act upon. Yeah, it's kind of like a like a transcendent feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be a good way to look at it, I think. Yeah, and if you kind of look at the word inspiration. that's kind of interesting is you have like the root word is kind of spirit mm -hmm. and in the Old Testament uh, when God created Adam he breathed into him right and what's interesting is that in the Old Testament in Hebrew breath and spirit are actually the same word mm -hmm. okay breath and spirit are the same word and so when we talk about inspired it basically uh, like all speech is modulated breath, right? I breathe out, right? That's why I can't speak in space. You can't do a lot of things in space, by the way. Be an ice cube in a second. But uh, <laughs> theoretically, you weren't. You couldn't breathe because there's no air to push out of your body, right? So um, inspiration is, you know, coming from, you know, the mouth. And when we talk about inspiration of scripture, the scripture come from the mouth of God, right? It is a God's word. So definition of inspiration when we talk about it with scripture is God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed <coughs> and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of the original writings okay so we don't necessarily believe in golden plates right there's plenty of ways that God worked through human authors to basically have them write down exactly what he wanted them to say and so if the author um, knew Greek, he used Greek. If the author knew Hebrew, he used Hebrew. He used their language, he used their vocabulary. And God, working through humanity, through human authors, has exactly what he wants to have said, said. 
and get that. That's in the original manuscripts, okay? Um, I'll talk more about that a little bit later. Um, now, a few um, terms help us to define the scope of inspiration of God's word. It is plenary, not in part, but the whole. And verbal, uh, it extends to what words as well as ideas. Thus, when we speak of verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures, we stress the totality of the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and the word of God. Now, why is it important to, to say that the entire Bible is the word of God? Right? How does it help us with this? I think one of the main issues is that you know, when we read the word, um, we're constantly um, confronted with a God who's different than us. Uh -huh. And our natural tendency is we want God to be just like us, mm -hmm. right? to agree with us about everything. And so that, I think that's, you know, you get like the Jefferson Bible where you just cut out everything that you, yeah. you don't like. And you guys know about that story, the Jefferson Bible? <clears throat> so Thomas Jefferson... Um, he was kind of like a, you know, a, a man of the world, where he was a scholar, gentleman, and president. And he um, subscribed to a religion called deism, which basically believed that, you know, that you know, there is God, a creator, and he's like this divine watchmaker where he set everything in motion, and then he kind of stu stood back and didn't actually interfere or interject himself in human affairs. And so when Jefferson... Yeah, read the Bible, he was a big fan of Jesus the moralist and moral teachings because having that Christian morality was really good for society. But when you read things about him turning water into wine or walking on the water, that would imply God actually you know, injecting himself. And so what he did was he, he basically cut out all the objectionable parts of the Bible, namely all the miracles and all the references that Jesus gave to his own deity so that you just have like this moral code given by Jesus and just the moral teaching, right? So he was able to kind of snip out what he wanted. Now, what's the problem with that? It only involves the parts that I like. Only involves the parts that I like, yeah. So what might be some parts of the Bible that people might want to Snip out. Hell. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, we'll go ahead and just cut out hell. Yeah, I mean, and it's a popular thing that's been going on for a long time, is that, you know, what the Bible says about this, oh, that's blank. Jesus never talked about this, right? Yeah, Jesus didn't say anything about abortion. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's this kind of attack on, oh, it doesn't talk about this, right? So that's the heart. We want to make sure that... Um, when you have a disagreement with God, that's too uncomfortable. So we have to make sure that's not, it wasn't really God that said this. It's somebody else. It's you, you Christians. They're just making this up. It's not really in the Bible. You guys ever heard the term red letter Christians? Yeah, what's meant by that? They ignore things that Jesus didn't say explicitly? Yeah. Yeah, I only follow the parts that are in the red letters. Right now, why does that sound compelling? Jesus' words, those are the ones that have the most weight. Everything uh -huh. else is, you know, maybe subject to some kind of faulty human interpretation of what God really wanted them to do. The mm -hmm. Straight from the horse's mouth kind of thing. That's yeah. 
Yeah, I remember my first encounter, like I began a Christian when I was in college. And um, I had a lot of zeal, but not a lot of knowledge. And I was, I was trying to figure out just how the whole thing worked. And my sister brought home one of her campus ministers. And, um, and so we just had like this discussion and I found out that she was a minister and I went to 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, that not, no, 2 Timothy, yeah, chapter 2, I think 12, um, where it says that women are not to teach or have authority over a man. So being the sensitive man that I was, I just kind of <laughs> opened up the Bible, pointed to that verse, and says, so you're a minister, but this verse says this. Why are you a minister? You know, <laughs> it was just kind of that clear. And she gave me this whole spiel about how um, the was written by Paul and with, you know, with the understanding that it was just kind of pertinent to just the world that he lived in. And I said, well, but he bases it off of creation here. And then she basically said, well, Jesus affirmed women, treasured women, promoted women. And so you have to ask yourself the question, do you want to follow Jesus or do you want to follow Paul? And I just said, well, they're both in the Bible, right? <laughs> so it, it was just uh, something's not getting. But, but here's the question. Who wrote these words of Jesus? Humans. Humans, right? And we know their names. Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? Paul quotes Jesus. Right? So, so when people do red-letter Christians, what they're trying to do is, like, they want to pick and choose what parts of the Bible they want to follow, right? So that's why verbal plenary inspiration means that the whole thing is inspired. Um, and that's you know, very popular even, even today where people will say, well, there's some parts of the Bible that are just not the word of God. So um, yeah, they'll point to some of the commands for genocide or um, some of the the commands that seem to be patriarchal in nature, or uh, some of the sexual ethics of the Bible, right? Those, that's not God's will, mm -hmm. right? And they'll, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I mean, it, I, when you talk about like why it's important to know where we get the Bible, you know, sometimes yeah. the greatest opponents of the Bible are people claiming in the name of, mm -hmm. you know, defending Christianity or saying, Jesus never claimed something he did claim, or the Bible never says this, something it does say. And kind of like Dave, I've had many encounters with people who I knew in college or campus ministry or from mm -hmm. church, and now they're espousing all kinds of anti-biblical views, saying, well, that's, the Bible doesn't say that. And so you have to go and, and point out sometimes things that are very obvious and very clear, but... You know, in, in many situations, yeah. there's a concerted effort internally by a person that I yeah. want to believe a certain view of the world. Yeah, it's contrary to what the scripture teach. So I have to find a way mm -hmm. to explain that to rationalize yeah. that. Yeah. So you look at um, like in the Methodist Church right now, um, there's a there's a split going on where you have the conservative Methodists want to become part of the global Methodist Church and be affiliated with the Methodist Church in Africa, and the United Methodist Church wants to kind of go you know, their own way and kind of you know, start their own denomination. And the, uh, the crux of the issue is, does the Bible affirm same-sex relationships? 
Right. Does it buy both? Yeah. The answer would be no. Right. But what's interesting is But I think it's. But I think this is this is a real issue that I think a lot of people don't really understand. Like I think from the outside, the fact that they're splitting over, you know, homosexuality and homosexual behavior, um, strikes you as like bigoted, right? You know, it's wrong to do that. That's not you know loving. It's not kind. You're just fixated on this one issue. But the real issue is this. Does the Bible have the authority to define sin? Does that make sense? So the issue really is the authority of the Bible and the clear teaching of Scripture is that same-sex acts are sinful no matter the context. And what's interesting is, um, you know, I even have a friend of mine who I went on a summer mission trip with. He's involved in the Methodist Church, and he basically... Um, decided to, you know, he kind of addressed the issue and, and why he's going to be a United Methodist. And that's because he says, when you look at the Bible, it's just pretty clear, you know, that the Bible never affirms same-sex behavior, never speaks about it in a positive way, and there's clear prohibitions against it. But then he said the Bible also seems to condone slavery and condone patriarchy and all these other things, that there are some parts of the Bible that, that, are, not, um, that are not from God. Okay? Some of them are from God, and some of them are not from God. And so we have to determine what is from God and what isn't. And so you have this paradigm of love. And I think in his case, it was the, the paradigm of, of fruitfulness. And so um, an anti-gay message is not fruitful. It leads to a lot of damage. Therefore, we need to extract that teaching from the scriptures. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so he's basically subjecting the authority of the Bible to the human interpretation of its fruitfulness. Does that make sense? So that's why when we talk about the origin of the Bible, is the Bible over me or am I over the Bible? Is the Bible over man or is man over the Bible? Okay. So that's why this is such a crucial issue um, to establish the authority of the authority of God's word. Is God's word authoritative? Okay. Any thoughts or questions? So I'm just trying to draw you in so you kind of see why this is such an important discussion to have. Okay, so um, so we'll go into the, the key passage that uh, that asserts its authority. Um, somebody want to read Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen. Ron, you want to read that for me? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, so literally, God. We talked about this. This word often offers a sense of um, this word offers the sense of words coming directly from the mouth of God. Nearly 4,000 times in the Old Testament, you find the words the Lord spoke, the Lord commanded, thus saith the Lord, the Lord said, etc. And so, so it makes it very clear that, you know, the scriptures, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, by scriptures it means at the very minimum Old Testament scripture, but I think he also means some of the, he understood that the New Testament was being written at the same time. I'll argue that later. He said that all of that is inspired from God. It comes from the word of God. Then we have another passage, um, 1 Timothy uh, 1, 20 through 21. Who wants to uh, read that? Second Peter. Oh, Second Peter, I'm sorry. 
What was I even thinking? <laughs> I was looking at it, my mind said something else. So Jack, you want to get that? But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay, so this is a very interesting uh, passage because again, gives us the, the how, right? Second Timothy gave us the what. You know, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. That's what it is. But then you get into the question of how it was written. You know, did an angel speak to a prophet who wrote it down on golden plates? Or in the case of, let's say, um, the Quran, um, Muhammad had a series of visions and his literate wife was writing them down as he gave them, right? So some people kind of have this dict what's called a dictation theory of revelation. God spoke and the author just went, okay, uh-huh, and he wrote it down. This kind of offers a little bit of a, a different view of inspiration. And the key word is moved, right? Yeah, not made by an act of will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So consider the usage of the word move in Acts 27, 15, especially in light of the interaction between the wind and the sailors. Okay, so uh, Acts 27, 15, and when the ship was caught in it, it could not face the wind, it gave way to it and let, and let ourselves be driven along. Right? So the idea is the wind pushed the boat. Right? So he's using that same type of language of the wind, the Holy Spirit, pushed these authors along. Have any of you guys ever gone sailing? None of you. Kansas. Kansas? <laughs> Have you? Yeah. yeah, what did you sail with? Like a 30 foot sailboat. Okay. And yeah, a storm came up and <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> Is it too too soon to talk about it or can <laughs> you <laughs> I wasn't the captain. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's safe to say like I went sailing in um, on a lake in Minnesota with some friends. We were on a catamaran. And that's pretty awesome, right? But you have different kind of sail. You like you have the thirty foot sail sailboat, you have the yacht, you have like those schooners. Uh, you have a catamaran. All of them are just a little bit different, right? You know, they all have different properties, different stabilities. They can go at different speeds. But they all need the wind to push them along. And so when we look at scripture, you have different kinds of authors with different kinds of occupations, right? So, I mean, what was Peter's occupation? Fisherman. He was a fisherman, right? How about Paul? Yeah, how about Matthew? Luke. You guys are doing a great job. Doctor, right? How about Moses? Shepherd. He was a shepherd. All right. So so all of them have like different, or, or even David, right? David was a shepherd at some point in time, too. And so, so you look at David, right? That shepherding motif kind of bleeds through a lot of his writings. Uh, Paul was an expert in the law, right? And that kind of comes through a lot of his writings. And yeah. so, but like yeah. you and Paul, like he was a sports fan. You know, there's a lot of like sports in his. Exactly, it's not wrong. It's I not. It's <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he wore, yeah. you know, Corinthian garb everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Team no. Corinth. <laughs> but 
No, no, no. But like David, you know, he talks about war a lot, you know, in the, in the uh -huh. Psalms. You know, he, he strengthens me, he gives me victory. So yeah, all of them are shaped by, you know, what they're, mm -hmm. they're like, their context. Yeah. And so there's different ways. Like, obviously, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God spoke and he wrote it down on stone tablets. But then there's other times where you have somebody who is prophesying, where they're speaking, and that's written down, like with Isaiah. Uh, then you have somebody like Luke, who you know has this orderly account. You know, does a lot of research, talks to a lot of eyewitnesses, and then he goes ahead and he kind of writes it down. Does that make sense? And so Revelation came from, through different channels, right? In every case, it was a person writing it, uh, mainly men, but they had the Holy Spirit pushing them, driving them along, so they wrote down exactly what God wanted them to write. So there's kind of a, there's, you can say kind of cooperative, right? Is all of the Lord using man they're using humans to write exactly what he wanted to say. So any questions about that? So I think that kind of accounts for, like when you read the Bible, it's just a bunch of different books, but <clears throat> I mean, what are some of um, the, what are some distinctly human characteristics of the Bible? And how does it explain how different books have different styles? So what's the difference between um, Psalms and Proverbs? Like the sentence structure? Yeah, just in general. Like Psalms is what? Poetry. Poetry, songs, right? What are Proverbs? Generally statements. Yeah. Kind of pithy sayings of wisdom. How about the difference between um, first and second Samuel and Isaiah. First and second Samuel is kind of more like current and kind of specific, like a story of what's going on. Yeah, kind of a history. Yeah. And Isaiah's more prophetic. Prophetic, right? How about the difference between the Gospel of Luke and Romans? Sometimes we talk about the difference between like narratives and descriptions versus indicatives yeah. and commands. Yeah. So one's a letter, right? One's kind of a, a biography. Right, so when you kind of look at it, you know, there's there's different formats mm -hmm. based off of different people's experiences and what they're trying to accomplish. One is like Luke was an account given to Theophilus, um, where the letter to the Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. And so ultimately, though, I mean, with all of the human interaction and everything, who is ultimately responsible for the authorship of Scripture? God. Yeah, God is, right, through the Holy Spirit. So then you kind of get to how was the Bible written? Well, the Bible has one divine author. Nearly 40 human authors cooperated with the Holy Spirit, beginning with Moses, who penned the first two chapters in Genesis around B.C. 1405. The Bible spans nearly 1,500 years, concluding with Revelation recorded by the Apostle John in AD 95. These authors resided everywhere from Rome to Babylon. Thus, the events, topography, culture, and even language bleeds through the human authors. 
Three languages of the Bible testify to the different diverse cultural background. Hebrew makes up the bulk of the Old Testament, Greek the New Testament, Aramaic and Daniel and select sayings in the gospel. Okay? Yeah, so four, nearly 40 humans have written the Bible over 1,500 years, right? Which makes it different from other, from other books, like the Quran was written by one person in a short period. Short period. The, the um, Book of Mormon, one person in a, you know, in a couple of years. So how do we know we have the entire Bible? <clears throat> Another way of phrasing the question is, what books comprise the canon of Scripture? So the canon of Scripture is the collection of books that met certain tests and thus were considered inspired by God, authoritative, and govern our lives. So during the life of Christ, the Old Testament was divided up into a list of 22 books, or 24 books respectively. In the 22-book canon, Ruth was part of Judges, and Lamentations was part of Jeremiah. The books are divided as follows. So you have the Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call that the Pentateuch. You have the Prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Obviously, you have 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. The latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then the 12, as you know, Malachi, Hosea, Jonah, Zephaniah, Zechariah. Then you have the writings, you have the Psalms, Proverbs, and Job, the five rolls, the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, the historical books, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So, and this kind of uh, I'll kind of set the stage here a little bit. Um, if you guys ever talk to an informed Catholic, right, um, the Roman Catholic Church uh, believes that the Bible is the word of God, but they also believe in something called the magisterium, right? Those are all the, that's all the teachings and the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And back when uh, Martin Luther started his Reformation, uh, at issue was the sale of indulgences. You guys ever heard the term indulgence? Right, an indulgence, the understanding was, if you give 100 bucks to buy an indulgence, you can get your grandma 10 fewer years in purgatory. Right, so they had a system of salvation that once you die, you go to a place called purgatory, and that's where you kind of work to become righteous like Christ and once you do your time in purgatory then you can actually enter into the presence of Jesus and actually be in heaven with God forever and so if you want to shorten your loved one's time there was this treasury of merit where you have Jesus you have Mary you have all the saints who did more good works than they needed to to get into heaven and out of the excess you can purchase some of their merits and give it to somebody else does that make sense? I'm not saying if you agree with it, but that's, that's <laughs> kind of the working theory. And so what they would do is to raise money to refurbish and expand St. Peter's Cathedral, they sent all these preachers throughout the land and they would teach about these indulgences and they'd say, like if you put some money in the coffer, you know, when a, when a penny rings, a soul springs, right? And so they were just selling indulgences to people. And so Martin Luther, you know, just read about this, and he just saw the obvious exploitation, and it really troubled him. And when he looked at scripture, he didn't see it. And so he's getting into these debates 
you know, and he's kind of arguing against it. He wrote nine to five theses against it. And, and at the issue was, you know, the, the Roman Catholic scholar would say, well, according to this papal bull, according to this council, and according to all these other things, um, you know, this is the teaching of the church. And Martin Luther couldn't deny that the church actually taught that. And so he just said, well, when you look at the Bible, there's no, you know, there's no scripture that teaches this. And so he understood that the reason why they were having a disagreement is what is your source of authority? Does that make sense? So if you look at what the Roman Catholic Church teaches with the Magisterium, that's what it teaches. When you look at what the Bible teaches, it doesn't teach that. So that's where he came up with the doctrine of sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone. We'll talk more about that a little bit later on. So if you were to talk to an informed Catholic, and there's a big Roman Catholic apologetic movement where they try to get people to come home to Rome, they will often challenge Christians and say, do you believe in sola scriptura that you know, the Bible alone is the authority of God's word? You know, the Bible alone is God's word, right? And the answer that we would say would be, Yes, right? And then they'd ask the question, so how did you get your Bible? How did you get your Bible? And how do you know that the books that you have in your canon are God's word? How would you guys answer that question? I'll just throw it out there. They're trying to walk you into a trap. We'll see how far you fall. I want to know your answers because I hear a lot of people debate about how um, they were picked by man and yep. they were um, filtered by man and mm -hmm. so some were left out to serve their agenda and some were added to serve their agenda. Yep. So I want to know your answer. You don't know my answer. Okay. <laughs> you may not get to it this week. I'll have to work <laughs> Yeah. Or the other one is the reason why, you know, who put the Bible together? Well, the answer is the church. Right, the church curated the scriptures. They determined which ones belong to the, you know, which books belong to the canon and which ones don't. And that is how we know that we have the word of God. Yeah. Um, I think too is a lot of times in that question, when you involve, you know, men and women, people in the church, reviewing, selecting. There's a, there's a, the implication that they're trying to get at is that in that process. It was the the people who were determining what was scripture, instead of the scripture revealing to the people what was scripture. Mm -hmm. Right? There's there's that implication that well, the scriptures don't say or clarify or make known to man which ones. So it must have been these men who were choosing mm -hmm. it for their own purposes. Yeah, and then you get into the well, why did we include you know the books that we include, and let's say exclude. Maccabees or Tobit like the Roman Catholic Church includes, right? So, so I mean, it's, a, an, it's an interesting question, right? So how do we know that we got the script, yeah, that the books that we have in the Bible are correct and that we didn't leave out any ones that should be in there? And how do we know that those are the books that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Does that make sense? So that's, that's why this is somewhat of a controversial issue. How do we know that we have basically accurately um, 
determine what books belong into the Bible. So here's some questions, like why is it important to determine which books belong in the Bible? What happens if you get it wrong? We potentially wouldn't have complete revelation at that point. If there's you know, a chapter you're missing, is yeah. there potentially a hole in your theology or something like that? Yeah, like Tobit has a reference to prayers for the dead, yeah, which would be one of the big arguments they would use for purgatory. So you pray for dead people to get them out of purgatory. Yeah, why else would it be important to make sure that we have the entirety of Scripture? All the books of the canon. Maybe the quotes, like from the Old Testament and quotes in the New Te Testament from the Old Testament, mm -hmm. like they're connecting. Okay. I mean, that's certainly one that kind of adds to it. But you do have other works you know, that would quote the Old Testament. Yeah. I think it goes back to the rigorous study of the Bible. If mm -hmm. you understand the context of all the books, including the ones in question that you're not sure of, then you've got something a baseline to go off of and then if we're operating under this uh, under the uh, assertion that god's word is infallible and there's a contradictory between a book and this god and that god it, or, or how he's portrayed then yeah. you've got to call into question the origins yeah. of where did this book come from how was it written does yeah. this does this yeah does this fit mm -hmm. and you just have to ask a bunch of yeah. Diligent, hard questions. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not an easy thing. I wouldn't want to be the person in that room. <laughs> at all. How about this? If, if we see the Bible as authoritative with regards to all matters to which it speaks, what role should it play in defining the canon? Oh. Uh, the Bible is authoritative in all the manners it speaks. I mean, define itself. Yeah, and I think that's really the issue that we have here is um, when you look at the authority of the Bible, so the authority of the Bible is a, um, confirmed by an external authority, right? Or internal authority. So the Roman Catholics would argue that externally it's, a, it's the church that gives authority to the Bible. Does that make sense? The church selected what books are in the Bible, and the church says, this is, you know, this is how we know the word of God is word of God because of this external authority. Internal authority is, you know, the Bible verifies itself. Okay, so when it, but even when you get to the church gives external, you know, gives authority to the Bible, well, who gave authority to the church? They would say that internally we have the authority. Right? Because we're the vicar of Christ, promise given to Peter has been passed on from generation to generation to the Pope. And so they say they have the internal authority to give authority to Scripture. Protestants would say that there is internal authority within the Scriptures. And I think what we're going to argue next week, because I want to do it like cohesively, is that careful study of Scripture, I think, reveals enough to know what parts are in the Bible and which parts are not. Right? There is an internal authority in, in the Bible where it's inherently there that is that is recognized by external sources. Right? The church recognizes the authority of the Bible. The church doesn't give authority to the Bible. Does that make sense? If the Bible really is a word of God, speaking from God, 
that is what gives it its authority. Whether people recognize it or not doesn't put it anything. You want to say something, Scott? Just that um, I think kind of that whole difference sometimes that when you when you place it in the external, the the implication is that if it were a different group of people, it could have been a different group of books. Yeah. Right. But internally, we're saying um, when believers come and read and study the scriptures, they'd all come to the same conclusion as to what. Yeah. Scripture, not because it's the testimony is coming from the word, not coming from the men. Yeah. People that are yeah. Studying. Yeah. So these are important. So I know this is kind of like maybe egghead stuff. You know, I just want to give a message to you, college students. You know, as you guys kind of grow in your knowledge of just accounting, engineering, math, and science, it's important that your knowledge of theology grows with that. You know, if you have like a, a junior high understanding of theology, but a graduate level knowledge of, of science and math, there's going to be kind of a disconnect, right? So that's why it's really important. That's why we're doing this, you know, this kind of deeper study is we want you to kind of have an elevated understanding of a lot of these important topics to defend your faith and I think even just have a lot of confidence in God's word. And I think one thing I experience a lot, like going through college and just going through um, a you know, master's degree, doctoral degree, is that... Mm -hmm. When you hear an argument against the scriptures for the first time, it sounds, you know, like, oh, the person's very persuasive, very confident, very forceful, and this is what we've discovered. And so as you as you grow, it sometimes drives you to study these mm -hmm. questions. Where does the word come from? And then the, as you come to understand what the Bible teaches and where we got it and all those things, then it sh those arguments show themselves for what they are, right? And mm -hmm. being empty and all the particular flaws yeah. that come with each one. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't continue to study that, we can be more easily discouraged and persuaded and yeah. cautious and reserved yeah. about our confidence in the Bible. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. It's like Satan doesn't want you to see the Bible as authoritative. He does he wants you to submit he wants you to be the authority of your life, not the other way around. And so that's why having a robust understanding of this is the word of God, I submit to it, is just of Christian discipleship, right? You talk about following Christ, right? The disciples, well, how do you know that you're following Christ unless you know him as revealed through the scripture? Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit next week about how did we come to select the word of God. And then I think um, at some point in time, I'm going to take some time and address... Um, how do you know that the manuscripts that we have are accurate? I'll do kind of a light lesson on textual criticism. So I do a little exercise, which is pretty fun. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty interesting. So let me pray that I'll let you guys go. Well, Father, I'm just so thankful for your word and just what it brings. And we just pray that we'll treasure it and that we will revere it and that we will be men and women who submit to your authority as imparted through your sacred scripture. As we go through this next uh, section of our worship service, I pray that it will be uh, a wonderful time where we sing praises to you, uh, we honor you, and we learn about you and your plan for us. In Christ's name, amen.